Chapter 26 of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 26 A Downy Cove. It could hardly be expected that my Uncle Corney should grow very miserable about this matter. He knew that young people of the ordinary cast tumble into love and tumble out again, with perhaps a little running of the eyes and nose, and a hat crushed on the head, or a ribbon saturated but nothing that penetrates the skin, far less puts a tub of clothes, as Mrs. Wilcox said, into the lungs, and it would not have been reasonable to demand of him that he should believe in any grand distinction between the case of Kitty and myself and that of any other couple he might come across in a life whose main nucleus was Covent Garden. That which chiefly moved him, as he told me in the end, and as I might have known without his telling, was the iron sense of justice, gilded happy at the corners and crowned with a little touch of chivalry. To his sturdy sense of right it seemed a monstrous thing that an innocent girl, and such a lovely girl, should be locked away from all who were longing to help her, and left at the mercy of two bad men. Therefore he donned his Sunday clothes, though he grumbled a good deal at having to do it, and without a word to me put old Spanker in the shafts and drove away alone in the green spring cart, with a face which made all the village say to one another that he must have a county court job on his hands. Dr. Sibbets, who came to see me every day, had by this time supplied such a row of medicine bottles that we glazed a new wall with them forty yards long, for he would not allow a farthing on their return, though he put them in the bill at two pence halfpenny apiece and that glazing brought him even more than that much again from the number of boys' fingers which he had to dress, for he was a skillful as well as a zealous man, and did his utmost for his patients and his family. He had now begun to exhibit mustard oil externally, as well as zinc and especially sulfur inside, till the sulfur began to ooze through my pores, as if I had been a tea-rose suffering from mildew. Then Tabby had to rub me with the mustard oil, and the more I groaned, the surer she became of its effect. With this vigorous treatment I began to rally, and even heard Uncle Corney depart, and contrived to steal a peep of him behind the window curtain, but they told me some fib about his errand. When he put up his horse somewhere near Holland Park, he had not far to walk to find Mrs. Wilcox, who received him with great cordiality and she sent her little Ted, who proved to be the very boy that had guided me among the brickfields, with a note which he managed to convey to Miss Fairthorn. Rumpus going on, he said when he came back. They makes more rumpus in that house than a score of navies over one red herring. But Cookie's not a bad sort. She'll give it to her. It was nearly an hour before Miss Fairthorn came, and then she was so nervous and downhearted that they scarcely knew what to do with her. At first she had quite forgotten Uncle Corney, having never seen him in his best clothes at home, and being distracted with sorrow and ill-usage, for as yet Mrs. Wilcox had been unable to get a word with her about the visit of the day before. Gradually, however, she began to understand what had happened and why she had not heard from me. "'Then he has not forgotten me after all,' she said in a tone that made her old nurse sob, and my uncle look out the window." Something told me all along that he could not forget me, any more than I could do such a thing to him. But you say that he is ill, that he has long been ill, and perhaps he will never be well any more. 
Tell me the truth. I would rather know it. Is he dead? Is he dead, Mr. Orchardson? No, my dear, thank the Lord he is still alive, and getting ever so much better every day. He went off his head just a little for a time, and he did not know me from the man in the moon. And what do you think was the word that was on his tongue all day and all night, too, for that matter? Guess, and I'll tell you if you are right. Oh, I know what it was. It began with a K, and it was not a very long word, was it? It was Kitty. Don't tell me that it was anything but Kitty. No, my dear, I won't, because I never tell fibs. Sure enough, that was it. Like a cherry clapper, only in a hundred different tones. I used to say that if you were there, you'd get heartily tired of your own name. Never, so long as it came from his lips. But I think I should have broken my heart all the same. It has been the kindest thing you could do to keep all knowledge of this long suspense from me. How soon will he be better? How soon will he be well again? Well enough, I mean, to come down and let me see him. At present, Miss Fairthorne, wherever he is not mustered, he is brimstone. You cannot expect him to present himself in that condition. But we have got the mischief out of his joints by this time. Dr. Sippets considers it a very thing that the ailment flew there, for his heart will be all right, and that's a great part of the system. In love, his head is of no importance in that condition. And Mrs. Wilcox proved to me last night that it is quite superfluity in the present days. Madam, you know you did, and you did it thoroughly. My uncle gave a wink at Mrs. Wilcox, not with any overture to familiarity, for he was very shy of widows, but to intimate to her that she should talk a little nonsense, after his example as a rescue from hysterics. For poor Kitty had been passing through much outrage all the morning, and now to be met with this shock of strange news, bad to her head, but perhaps good for her heart, after such a long time of dejection was enough to throw the finest daughter of divine science into some confusion as to all her organisms. But she fetched herself back from the precipice of sobs with a deep draught of air and spoke as if she did not feel. If he is being treated like, like beef, I think I ought to have a voice in the matter. Will you let me come down and do it for him, or see that it is done properly? My father has taught me so many things. My dear, said my uncle, being truly thankful to her for not even pulling out her handkerchief, you are the sweetest young lady I have ever met. No, you shall not come down and nurse our kit, not only because it is not the place for you, but also that it might be very bad for him. His mind must not come back with a jerk, however pleasant the jerk may be. He must come round slowly, and he has begun to do it under Tabby Tapscott's scrubbing brush. But you shall come and see him in a week, my dear, if you think you can hold out so long here. And now tell me, what is going on to urge your gentle nature so? The young lady looked at Mrs. Wilcox as if she could hardly tell what to do. She was very unwilling to refuse my uncle anything he might ask her, and yet she could not bring herself to speak of such matters to him. I will tell you all about it when she is gone, said the lady of the shop, as if hurried for time. But I know by her look that she is getting in a fright. What will they do if they catch you out, dearie? I defy them. I defy them. They may do what they like. Now I know the kid stands fast to me. After all he has suffered for my sake, 
am I likely to show the white feather? Uncle Corney, I will come away with you and let them do their worst if you will take me. She pulled her hat down on her forehead and drew her crinoline into small compass as if she were ready to mount our spring cart, and her manner had such an effect on my uncle, for very pretty girls do even more by attitude than by words or looks, that he saw himself driving her away and looking back with a whistle of defiance at the world. Moreover, she had called him Uncle Corny, which put him on his mettle to deserve it, and though there have been few men born as yet, with more gift of decision in her nature, he looked at her lovingly and hesitated. It will not do, Mrs. Wilcox interrupted, as if she were once more in office as nurse. Of law I know nothing, sir, and you do, as you was pleased to tell me yesterday. If her father was at home and sanctioned it, no doubt it might be in your jurisdiction. The good lady was proud of her law and repeated, It might be in your jurisdiction, sir. But without any sign of that, where should we be? Pulled up for conspiracy against the realm, and nothing for me but to put my shutters up. I fear that you are right, ma'am, replied my uncle, though I don't care twopence for the law sometimes, when I feel better law inside me. But it is a young lady we must think of first. We must let her do nothing to injure herself. Have patience, my dear. They may torment you in the house, but they cannot take you out of it, and marry you to anybody against your own will and pleasure. Your will and pleasure is to have our kit, and with the will of the Lord you shall do so. I suppose I must go back. There seems nothing else to do. Miss Fairthorne spoke very sadly, looking from one to the other and trying to be cheerful. But if the worst comes to the worst— "'Will you find a place for me, Uncle Corney? "'I have got a little money my dear father gave me, "'and they shall take away my life before they get it.' "'Bravo! Well said indeed, my dear.' "'This alone was needed to confirm my uncle "'in his high opinion of her. "'What a life you will make for a steady young man. "'Yes, my dear child, I will find you a place, "'and you shan't pay sixpence for it.' and none but your father shall take you away unless the Lord Chancellor comes himself to fetch you. Thank you. Then I shall know what to do. I am not so much afraid of them, now I know that kid is true. I shall say to myself, what is this to put up with after all that he is born for me? Give him my best love, and tell him to get well, and sit by the window and look out for me. Goodbye, Uncle Corny. I will not attempt to thank you. Goodbye, nurse. I don't deserve such friends. They may do what they like now, and I shall only laugh. She deserves the best friends, and she shall have them, too, Mr. Orcherson said as soon as she was gone, with little Ted to see the way clear for her. That's what I call a downright good girl, without a bit of humbug in her. A fig for their science. Will it ever produce such a fine bit of nature as that is? Now tell me, as far as you can, Mrs. Wilcox, what is it they want to do with her, and why do they torment her so, and what we can do to stop it? My uncle laid his watch on the table because he wished to be home before dark, and the days, though drawing out nicely, were not very long. He knew that the lady with whom he had to deal, instead of putting things in the small compass, would fetch a large compass about them, whose radius would only be lengthened by any disturbance or hurry on his part. 
so he merely placed his watch as a silent, or at least a comparatively quiet, witness and reproof. But the scheme failed as it deserved to do. All he obtained by it was a lesson, which he often repeated afterwards. Never set a watch to go against a woman's tongue. It puts her on her mettle to outgo it, and one wants winding, but the other never does. Mrs. Wilcox had not so very much to tell, but she found a vast quantity to say, and never said it twice to the same effect. Stripped of her embellishments, reflections, divergencies, and other little sallies, it was something as follows. Captain Fairthorne had been called away to see the fitting of some ship near Glasgow, with engines of a special kind and large coal storage so that she might keep at sea for months together. Seven years, the lady said, but that looked like a lady's tale. And there were to be wonderful appliances, such as never have been heard of on board her, as well as every kind of scientific instrument, all under the professor's own direction. If ever a man was in his own element, this was the man, and the time and place were there. No wonder that he forgot all other things below the moon, and it was much to his credit that before he started he insisted on a promise from his wife and two stepdaughters that his dear child Kitty should be treated kindly and harassed by none of them while he was away. Upon that condition only would he send them every month a handsome sum out of the liberal payment he was to receive for his services, and he thought himself very firm and most sagacious, even suspicious it might be, in providing that before he drew each check he should have by post a line from his own daughter to this effect, I am very happy, and every one is most kind to me. Unluckily his suspicions were not very shrewd, for he forgot that there were pens and ink and fingers at Bull Rag Park, quite apart from Kitty's, well able to afford him that assurance in her name, for the gift of forgery was in the family, and his daughter was not to distract him with letters, so long as he knew that she was comfortable. No sooner was he off the scene than the old rake, Sir Cumberlay Hotchpot, reappeared, having purposely kept away till then, for he dreaded the simple and calm man of silence. He annoyed poor Miss Fairthorne with his odious advances and coarse familiarity and slangly talk, and he took a mean advantage of her gentle diffidence by perpetually assuming that she was pledged to him. This, and the contempt and spiteful hatred of her stepmother, seemed more than enough for the poor girl to have to bear. But soon a far greater distress was added, Donovan Bullrag, the only son of the Honorable Mrs. Bullrag Fairthorne, as she absurdly called herself, came home from the continent, where he had been engaged on the staff of some embassy, after running from his debts, and the house, and the people, and the chattels therein were not good enough for him to tread upon. This would have mattered little to Miss Fairthorne, who was rarely favored with the Bullrag Society, except for the purpose of insults if this divine downy, as his mother called him, had not taken into his great yellow head the idea that he was in love with Kitty. This dearly beloved son of his mother was a strong young man of three or four and twenty, able to take his own part anywhere, either with violence or with fraud, but preferring the latter when it would do the trick. Mrs. Wilcox said that he had three crowns to his head, which went beyond all their experience, although she had been in a hospital. She had known malefactors with two sometimes, and you never could tell where their mischief began. 
because it started double, but she combed the hair of this boy once, and nothing would tempt her to do it again. She was not superstitious, but afraid more often of being too much the other way, and she left it entirely to the future to prove her a fool, if she deserved it, only let anyone look at his head. For it was not only that he was bad inside, but that he gave the same idea at first sight to anyone having any sense of human looks. It was not Mrs. Wilcox alone who said this, but my uncle as well, when he happened to see the young man while going to look for his horse. He had noticed that he might have the luck to meet him, and sure enough he had, if there was any luck in it, and my Uncle Corney, though a man of strong opinions, did not go so entirely by outward show. Mr. Downey Bullrag is the grandson of a lord, and likely enough to be a lord himself if people in his way died out of it, had a sense of being somebody, and liked the world to know that he was rather an important part of it. Not that he swaggered or stuck out his arms or jerked himself into big attitudes, as some bits of the human chip do. All that he left for fellows who had yet to prove their value and knew much less of life than he did. His manner and air were of solid and silent conviction, that without him this earth would be a place unfit for a civilized race to inhabit. He prided himself, if he had any pride, upon his knowledge of human nature, and like most who do that, he attributed every word and every action to selfishness, spite, and cupidity, and like the great bulk of such people again, he was truly consistent in his own freedom from any loftier motives. His mother's pet name for him had been confirmed by all who had the honor of knowing him. He was downy in manner, as well as appearance, and according to the slang of the day, a downy cove in all his actions. No one could look at his bulky form, which greatly resembled his father's. Enormous head furnished with bright yellow hair, soft saffron mustache, and orange-colored eyelashes without thinking of a fat, downy apricot, and fearing that he had none of its excellence. His face, too, is flattened in its own broad substance, as that yellow fruit often is against the wall and bulged at the jowl with a great socket of square jaws. But the forehead was the main and most impressive feature, full and round and almost beetling, wider even than the great wide jaws. But for its heaviness, it would have looked like the bulwark of a mighty brain, and there was room for the brain of a cuvier in that head. My good Uncle Corney, meeting this man in the road and knowing who he was from description received, clapped his keen gray eyes with emphasis upon him, as much as to say, I mean to look through you, young man. Downey, with his usual self-esteem, which stands like a dummy at every loophole when the garrison of self-respect is gone, gazed at the grower with a placid acceptance of rustic admiration. Little did he dream that another creak of his boots would have brought the crack of a big whip round his loins, for my uncle was a hasty man sometimes, and can prove it his duty to be so. And the heavy, half-somolent look of Downey, as if he were gaping with his eyes almost, was enough to put a quick, busy man in a rage, even if he had no bone to pick with the man who was making a dog of him. End of chapter 26